All right, guys, so we're in a, a series, a mini-series in the book of Romans, uh, chapters 12 through 15, and it's called Relate. And we've been unpacking this idea that Christianity is, is fundamentally, it's relational. Uh, before you get into rules, you should think uh, relationship. And not just relationship with God, but relationship with one another. That, we, that, 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 that the gospel changes the way we, we relate to God, which is what the beginning of Romans 1 through 11 looks at, but it should also change the way that we relate to one another. And far too many people who claim to be followers of Jesus don't treat people any different than anyone in the world treats people. They, they treat people as if they haven't been reconciled to the God of the universe in a scandalous way through radical forgiveness unearned grace and, and just tons of patience. We treat each other in ways that God would never treat us. And then we wonder why people are not interested in the gospel or the church. And so we're looking at this idea of how do we relate to one another. It, 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 one way to look at this series is we, we've been unpacking the qualities that uh, the church family should have. That all families have Every family, any family you've ever walked into has characteristics or qualities about it, words that you could use to describe it. And Paul's kind of laying out, man, this is what should describe the church. Here's some qualities a healthy, not a perfect, but a healthy church should have or should be striving for. We should be growing in these things. And so um, three weeks ago, I, I taught on the idea of patience, that we need patience for ourselves and one another as we change in kind of messy and painful and slow ways that we need patience. We're going to be a healthy church family. And two weeks ago, I taught the first half of Romans chapter 12, verse 13, and I talked to the idea of generosity, that we would meet each other's needs in practical ways. Places to stay, finances, cars, um, food, whatever it is that, we, that we're, we're trying to do that. And it's not independence, kind of American dream, and it's not codependence. I have no choice. It's an interdependence of we meet each other's needs in different ways and different seasons. And then last week, I finished teaching the second half of Romans 12, 13 on this idea of hospitality, this idea that God's family should be a welcoming family that, that longs to grow, that, that we are bridge builders, not wall builders. And, and today, I'm going to be teaching uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 15 on another characteristic of God's family that's wildly misunderstood in our cultural moment, and it's the concept of empathy. Empathy. So again, according to Romans 12, what are some characteristics the church should have? Uh, patience, generosity, hospitality, and today, empathy. And our text today is one verse, which hopefully, prayerfully means a short sermon, all right? Romans chapter 12, verse 15. Paul writes this. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. What Paul's describing and this passage is empathy. Uh, and if you were to look up empathy in the dictionary, it says the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. It's not the sexiest intro I've ever done, a dictionary definition, but there it is. The ability to understand and share the feelings of another. Now, this seems like a straightforward command in theory. But in practice, this is a really complicated thing to do. There's a lot of tension in this command. There's a lot about what about this or, or, or what if this. Like, for example, what if you're really uncomfortable with mourning? <laughs> and you don't even know how, to, you don't know how to mourn on your own. Never mind walk with someone else who's mourning. Or what if you believe that you need to make everyone happy? Right? It, 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 so it's like, I don't want to mourn with them. I want to make people who are mourning rejoice, which isn't what he asks you to do. 
Like, I have a great silver lining in this situation. Like, we don't want to hear it. Also, man, there's a ton of challenges. Uh, because of sin, we tend to be selfish by nature. Right? We tend to, um, in our worst moments, we tend to rejoice when others are weeping because we're jealous and we compare and we're performance-driven. And so, and so there's these moments where... Um, someone doesn't get the thing, and you're like, it's about time, you know, or whatever. Again, you never say that loud. Or we weep because others are rejoicing. I'm not, a, man, they, they're having a 20-year marriage celebration, whatever, man. I, I don't know if my marriage is going to make it five years. Um, man, I see their financial situation. They got this, man, I, man, I you know. They've got a new baby. I don't know if we'll ever have a baby. Whatever it is, like, like we, we see that, and it's hard for us to, 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 to rejoice because of our mourning or our insecurity or our own sin. Second, um, what do we do when we are personally, personally in a season of rejoicing and someone we love is going through a season of mourning? How do you simultaneously live in two spaces? Um, what do we do when different people outside of us are impacted differently by the same events. I saw this in a very shallow uh, version. Uh, we had like a four-year run where the Patriots beat the Chargers in the playoffs every year. Like every year, man. And it was just rough to watch the games with Charger fans after a while because it was like, this is exciting, but it's just kind of sad. And they're angry, and it's just awkward, right? Uh, shallow, but it was, real. it was like same event, same outcome, very different implications for, for the people in the room. That's also true of weddings. If you're feeling the weight of singleness, or what, you're happy for your friends, but you're torn. You're like, I'm reminded of the wedding I haven't had yet that I, that I long for. Or the news of, of a pregnancy, if, if you're struggling to conceive, or you've had a miscarriage recently. In my own home, I, 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 yesterday I, took, I asked Calvin, I said, man, do you wanna go get hot chocolate at Dark Horse? And he said, yes, he was pumped. And Olivia's like, what about me? I was like, oh, sweet, I'm going to take Cal. But what about me? What, we got to do something for me, right? And she's going, and, and, and very quickly, same event, very different implications for the people in the room. And she gets plenty of her own, you know, daddy dates. Fourth, or another thing that makes empathy hard, um, we, may not, we may not articulate this, but again, I think because of our sin and, and our arrogance, we believe that only certain people deserve our empathy and understanding. Only certain people deserve our empathy and understandings. For example, people have the same politics as us. Got a lot of empathy for that right now. For, for your side or whatever, very little for the other side. Um, people whose life's choices you respect, right? You have a lot of empathy for them, but, but not for others. So today I want to look at this idea of empathizing from a variety of, of angles to help us be kind of that beautiful, safe, uh, empathetic family the church is called to be. So here's my breakdown of empathy. I've got three ideas I want to look at today. Number one, empathy can only happen when we let each other into our lives. Empathy can only happen when we let each other into our lives. Two, empathy is for everybody. Empathy is for everybody. And three, empathy is done best when we empathize like Jesus, which feels really cliche, but it's gonna, it blew my mind diving into it. All right, so number one, Empathy can only happen when we let each other into our lives. In other words, empathy is often preceded by authenticity or vulnerability. I can't understand what you are feeling if you never share what you are feeling with me. 
Does that make sense? Like, like I, I just can't do it. I, I can't celebrate with you if I don't know what you are celebrating. I can't wish you a happy birthday if I don't know when your birthday is. I can't celebrate your graduation from grad school if I didn't know you were in grad school. I can't celebrate you getting debt-free if I never knew you were in debt. I can't mourn with you, on the other hand, if I didn't know that you were mourning or you are afraid. I can't come alongside you as you grieve a death if I don't know that's happened. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, he, said, he says, We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, which is a good thing, very apostle thing, bring the gospel, but also our own lives because you would become very dear to us. Church is not just an event you go to. Again, it's a group of people who are dear to one another, who share their lives with one another. They do share the gospel too. It's not just a support group, but it's, it's not a theology class either. It's a family built on truth. Even Jesus brings his closest friends with him to Gethsemane while he prays and agonizes about the cross. Think about that. He's got three kind of whack friends. He's like, I need you here praying for me while I pray. And so who are we to live independent lives where no one knows what's going on with us? We're called to share our lives with one another as family. Now, I know that's scary. and It takes time to build trust. I want to caveat that. It's not like you go from zero to talking about the deepest pain of your childhood in two seconds or whatever. But, but someone should know what's knowable about you. You should be authentic with someone. This is a similar point to the one I made in the, in the generosity talk a few weeks back about meeting each other's needs. Again, we can't meet needs if we don't know they exist. And this is also true of spiritual and emotional needs. Again, I can't walk with you through a trial or a temptation if I don't know that you are in that. I can't walk with you through sin or suffering. I can't dance with you through your successes and celebrations if they're a secret to me. And sometimes, um, again, I, got, I got into this about two weeks ago, sometimes we didn't learn how to express needs or longings growing up in a fallen world, in a fallen family, so we don't express those needs. But here's what breaks my heart in the church, is so often then people feel unloved or disappointed by people who didn't show up for them in ways they never asked for. It's like, dude, it's totally understandable that you feel let down. But also, they would have loved to have done this. I'm so bummed we're just finding out about this. We can't expect people to read our minds or just know what we need. Peter Scazzaro in the Emotional Healthy Relationships curriculum, he says, it's so helpful. He talks about clarifying expectations, and he says we, we, he says we have to stop mind reading. It's kind of cheesy, but it's helpful. Like, like, you should just know what I want, right? All the time back in the day, uh, and premarital with Jackie, all the time when we sit with couples, we had to tell them, hey, you're not allowed to hold someone accountable for something you've never asked for. He should just want to do it. Nope. She should just know that, nope. You ask. They can say yes or no or whatever, but, but you got to ask and put it, put it forward. When my uh, wife got pregnant with Clive, um, uh, there was a friend of hers who, unbeknownst to her, uh, this is years ago, this was like 13 years ago or whatever, um, there's no one in this church, uh, but there was someone who was, was trying to get pregnant and she didn't even really know. Uh, and long story short, when she said, hey, you know, I'm pregnant or whatever, um, it, it was fine. Um, but, but over time, um, Jack started to notice, like, she wasn't being invited to stuff, like, pretty, in pretty brazen way, like, a group that was together that was, like, no longer together, and she was kind of on the outside looking in, and, um, and, like, years later, the person would apologize and say, 
hey, I actually, um, we were struggling to conceive. They ended up having babies and stuff. But we were struggling to do that, and so I was mad at you uh, for that. Which, again, I, I've watched with enough people now who've struggled to conceive to understand that it can be triggering to be around the news of, of, of a new pregnancy. I don't think this person's an evil person or was malicious, but she definitely hurt Jackie, and it would have been so helpful to communicate and say, hey, um, this is hard for me, and I don't know how to work through, I don't know what to do here, rather than pushing her out of her life, and even, you know, kind of the lives of other people for a while, and kind of punished her. There's a much better way to be family. Again, we could have been really sensitive about that time and that announcement, and that whole thing had we known. And so, man, let people in to your struggles and celebrations. That's one thing I want to share. Um, number two, empathy is for everybody. Everybody. Uh, we live in a time of what uh, political commentator David French calls selective empathy. Selective empathy. And that's where we choose who to empathize with based on if we deem them worthy or how similar they are to us in our story and experience. So we're quick to empathize with certain groups of people, and we do not empathize with other groups of people. Um, last year, 2020, it was a fairly divided year on like a, a bunch of, a uh, bunch of, in a bunch of ways. I don't know what, what word I was going for there. But I remember um, th- there's the, mur- the, the murder of George Floyd. And I remember listening to members of my family uh, who are black and have had very negative, scary, physically abusive interactions with police who to this day worry that if they're in the wrong place at the wrong time due to their race or their physical size, that they could be in danger because someone felt threatened and called the police at an unnecessary time. As I sat with them and heard one of the stories, it's like, like my heart broke for them as we talked. And I said, man, I don't know what that's like walking around looking like the whitest man in America. Now, because my heart breaks for that scenario, does that mean that I think all police are terrible or that I think police are mostly bad? Is that what you're getting from that? Have I tipped my hand regarding my political views regarding abolishing, reforming, or expanding police departments? Hopefully, no, because that's, that's not what you should have gotten from it. What I did was I took seriously their pain and their stories. I took seriously their fears regarding their kids, especially their sons, not coming home at night. I didn't get into policy or what you, I'm just saying that, that, that reality, that fear, that feeling. On the flip side, I have multiple friends and family members of friends who are police officers. And many of them, um, uh, many of them believe that there should be police reform and more accountability, and they're good dudes. Uh, uh, my brother-in-law is a person of color and a police officer. It's, it's, it's a whole situation. But you know what? A lot of those police officers, the ones that I'm friends with, they're good police officers because they're good dudes in every way that I know. And I remember um, talking to family members of police officers that I know who were absolutely terrified about their spouses or their brothers or their fathers going into the spaces of violence and unrest that summer where they had to work overnight shifts and things are being thrown at them and gunshots are going off 
and people are threatening to, uh, people are trying to physically harm them or kill them and are threatening them. Making jokes about sexually assaulting their wives. Hurling, I mean, just if you just take context out of it for a second, just go, if you as a dude just, someone's making a joke like that and you have to stay calm and stay present, that is hard. Like, I, again, I don't care what your politics are. And my heart broke because I was talking to a family member of a police officer. And, and, and ultimately what they were communicating was, I'm really worried about my family member. And, and, and I simultaneously feel guilty that I'm worried about them because I feel like it's demeaning what black people have gone through in this country. And I, I just remember thinking, man, this isn't a zero-sum game. Like, we don't have to pick who we have compassion and empathy for. Anyone whose family member is in a space of violence or uncertainty, we would all be concerned if it was your brother or your sister or your spouse, regardless of what the circumstances was. It's like, who said we had to pick who we empathize with? Does this mean I think all police are good and should be trusted and don't need accountability? Is that me showing my political hand by empathizing with that family member of a police officer? The answer is no. It means I was taking this woman's story seriously and considering the fear she had about the physical safety of someone so close to her. And she's beautiful art. She's also worried about empathizing with, with people of color and people who are afraid of the police. She, she's living in both spaces. But she felt bad about one. I was like, no, you can empathize fully and be worried. And so here's what really blew my mind preparing to preach this text that showed me empathy is for everyone. In Romans chapter 12, there's a pretty clear shift where Paul stops teaching the church how to relate to one another only, and he moves to teaching the church how to relate to an unbelieving world outside of the church. And not just an unbelieving world, but a hostile, persecuting world. Most scholars think it begins in Romans chapter 12, verse 14, and it moves through to verse 21 before Paul gets into the governing authorities in Romans 13. Now, we've read from Romans 12, 15 today. We skipped a verse because I'm going to do a whole sermon on enemy love. But it, that section starts at verse 14. So I'm going to go ahead and read Romans 12, 14 to 15. It says this, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Who's doing that right now? <laughs> rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Guys, this blew my mind. When Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, contextually, Paul is calling us to empathize with our enemies. Our enemies. If they are mourning because they've suffered loss and they're my enemy, I mourn for the fact that they are mourning. If they're rejoicing because they got good news that's not connected to evil, I, I am rejoicing for them. Man, what, by the way, not agreeing. Not agreeing. It's not that you agree. It's that you're empathizing with. If you have someone who's persecuting the church, clearly Paul didn't agree with their assessment of the church or how they should deal with the church. But he calls us to, to, to love our enemies to empathize with everyone. And we really do pick, man. We pick over and over and over again. 
Followers of Jesus, as we'll see in the rest of this text in January, are called to enemy love. This is what the church uh, should be known for, but it's not known for this. And a part of enemy love is empathy. Again, forget people who are different. He's talking to enemies. So, so this doesn't, so, and by the way, this doesn't mean you agree with their actions or their perspectives or their politics. It doesn't mean you excuse sin or relational dysfunction. But it does mean you see the weakness and neediness of other humans, something we all have in common. You are sinful. You are frail. You recognize that you are far more like any other human than you are like Jesus at any given moment. I, I think this would really help with unity, too. Like, if we had empathy, like, people that believe things that are crazy to you or that are kind of are irrational to you, often they're afraid. They're afraid. And they're running to extremes to deal with their fear. You know what it's like to be afraid, even if their solution is just wax sauce. You know what it's like to be afraid. You know what it's like to be sad. You know what it's like to be confused. You know what it's like to feel threatened in some way, shape, or form. Everyone is a sinner. Everyone has been sinned against. That's why we don't need to compare suffering. Again, I, I can empathize with you, and I can empathize with you, and I can empathize with you. We don't need to compare suffering. Number three, um, empathy is done best when we empathize like Jesus. Empathy is done best when we empathize like Jesus. I'm going to read uh, from John chapter 11. I'm going to read the text in its entirety. I'll comment a little bit and show what I mean by empathize like Jesus. It says, when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Uh, many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Then Mary said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. As soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him? He asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. And it says, Jesus wept. 
And wept in Greek, you're not going to believe this, it means wept. So the, G- the Jews said, see how he loved him. See how he loved him. Jesus enters into their space, but he hangs on to his identity. He knows who he is as Messiah, and he knows what, what they are going through. He even knows what he's about to do that they don't know. Like, he's got a wild funeral party trick coming up. He's got a resurrection coming up of Lazarus. And he doesn't go, because Lazarus is going to get resurrected. Man, stop crying. Stop crying. It's unnecessary. He goes, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Humans are not designed to experience death. Therefore, we are not designed to experience grief. We're not designed to experience sin or injustice or pain or betrayal or adultery or deceit or slander. And on and on it goes. We weren't designed to sin. And so when we have human moments where we're feeling stuff, Jesus sees that and he goes, I get where you're coming from. He does not know what it's like to sin, but he knows what it's like to be tempted. And he knows what it's like to suffer. Like he, he enters in. And this leads to this handy dandy um, chart I made. I think we have it. Okay. And here we've got relational postures. Okay. Relational postures. Now, spoiler alert, I'm just going to say I think Jesus is in the middle. Uh, and the more you study the Gospels, it blows your mind. And if we can live like Jesus in this space, we're going to be fine, you guys. I know it's like, culture's great. If you live here, you'll be fine. So I want to look at some of these uh, real quick, okay? So we've got three uh, main postures. And these are ways that we relate to people in terms of how we connect to them emotionally, okay? Um, and so we've got apathetic and this is, I am self-defined, but I'm not connected, right? I know what matters to me. I know what I'm about, and I'm not going to be bothered uh, by whatever's going on with you. I'm not going to be emotionally connected, okay? Then there's, on the other end of the spectrum, there's enmeshed, which is, I'm connected to you, but I don't know who I am. Your emotions are my emotions. Your perspectives are my perspectives. Your conflicts are my, uh, my conflicts, I was going to quote a Mob Deep song. I'm not going to. Um, I already, I, your beef is my beef, okay? So, so it's like I don't know where I'm at, and I take on all your stuff, okay? Now, um, then we've got empathetic, which is I'm self-defined. I am Messiah. I am Jesus, and I'm connected to you as humans, even though you're different than me. There's clearly distinction, but I enter your world in the incarnation. That's what Christmas is all about. I enter in. I'm connected. I've done a lot to connect. I die on a cross. I'm born of a virgin. I live a perfect sentence of on and on it goes. But, but I'm self-defined. No one's changed. You know? so, so apathy, it feels like narcissism. This is what it feels like. It feels like I care about me. I don't care about you. Okay? I'm not saying you're diagnosably narcissistic. By the way, I think everyone in this room, you lean this way or this way naturally, apart from the Holy Spirit's work in your life and identity in Christ. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, but, it, but it feels like I'm, I'm, like, I'm worried about me. I'm not worried about you. Um, this feels like codependency enmeshment. Okay? What do, what do you want? 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 Uh, what am I feeling? What are you feeling? What am I, you know? Uh, and so it's just, it's, it sounds funny, but it's, it's a nightmare relationally. You will wear yourself out in these types of relationships. Even if you're, you love it. 
and you're addicted to it, uh, it, it doesn't work over time. Uh, then there's apathetic. This is keep to yourself. This would be a God who stays in heaven that doesn't come in to engage. Then on the other end of the spectrum of enmeshment, um, there's you lose yourself. Again, I don't know where I end and you begin. I don't know who I am and who you are anymore. I don't know what I'm called to and you're called to. And then there's you offer yourself. This is Jesus. Um, I, I'm choosing to, to do this thing. I'm in the Garden of Gethsemane. I've agonized. I've prayed. I've done the work. I'm choosing to offer myself in this situation to the person struggling. Um, apathetic, you're uninterested in the feelings or beliefs of others. You're like, I don't really care. Just don't mess with my stuff, okay? Um, enmeshed, uh, this is what our, uh, our culture likes to, um, like we moved on from tolerance, and, and we do a mesh, which is I have to affirm your feelings, beliefs, and choices, even if self-destructive or sinful, okay? Incarnation, empathy is I affirm your feelings, but not necessarily your beliefs, okay? I don't tell you your beliefs are stupid. I don't mock them. I just don't necessarily have to take them on. And I might even challenge your beliefs in love, because you might be believing something that's damaging to you. A lot of us, we talked about this before, a lot of us carry narratives from our past, from our family of origin, uh, from the enemy, from whatever it is. And we've got these lies that feel real. And if you're having a strong emotional response, you're like, I think everyone hates me pastorally. It's irresponsible to go, yeah, yeah, you're right. I'm serious, guys. If you, you take it to a logical conclusion, it's, it's ridiculous. But it's what's, what's, you know, I just feel like everyone's doing this, man. I see how you can feel that way. That's so hard. I want to cry with you, sit with you. I see how you could feel that way. Does that make sense? Yeah, everyone hates you. Get out of here. Uh, apathy, this is how they listen. Uh, they, they don't listen. <laughs> or they listen to defend. Have you guys have ever done this where you're in an argument, you're like, just give me a little more, give me a little more. Lawyer time, bam. <laughs> Hit you with facts. That may or may not even be facts, man. Enmeshed is, I listen to fix or appease. Because I don't know where, where I end and you begin. Like, I, ha I have to make you better, right? So I've gotta, I feel like I need to fix. I need to make you happy, right? Which, by the way, um, for a person who's not enmeshed, who is suffering, they are not into that. Like, I feel like you're trying to fix me right now. I feel like you're trying to give me a silver lining, right? Um, or um, I need to appease you. I just need to, right? I just need to make you, I need you to make you happy with me which is actually super selfish. It looks like you, does that make sense? Because you're like, let, I just need you to be, I want, I'm going to take on whatever perspective you have so you'll be happy with me and it may not even help them in any way. You know, um, we go to the next one. Oh, sorry, empathetic, you, you listen to learn and love. And you see this with Jesus all the time. Um, he enters into spaces, he listens, he invites us to talk to him. So we'll see in a second. Um, but but he, he's, he's listening to, to, um, to, to love and to engage. All right, um, a couple more of these. Uh, is this helpful? Is this, is this confusing? Okay. Yes. Are the, are the three things distinct in your mind? They are. Okay, cool. Okay. Uh, so we'll keep it going. Uh, apathetic, never sacrifices, right? Always out of town when you need help with anything. <laughs> Always busy. Enmeshed people. They're manipulated into sacrificial behavior, right? Um, you know, um, you know. I mean, if you loved me, you'd do this, 
You know, if you love me well, you, you do this. Um, it's not a sacrifice if you're pressured or manipulated into doing it. That, that's not sacrifice um, if you're guilted into doing it. Um, it's not a sacrifice if you don't have a choice. If you don't have a choice, it's called, a, I'm not trying to be funny, it's, it's abusive at that point. I'm being forced to do something I don't want to do, but I'm doing it because I feel like I have to. Empathetic, you prayerfully discern when and how to sacrifice for the person. Can we even see this with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? And we also see it, he says, no one takes my life from me, I choose to lay it down. It's not weakness that makes him go to the cross or weakness that keeps him on the cross. It's a choice to use his strength for the benefit of another. He's choosing to sacrifice. Um, another thing um, uh, on the apathy, um, if they did not intend to uh, hurt uh, someone, they believe the impact on others doesn't matter. Okay? So I don't know if you've ever heard it. It's like, man, well, I didn't mean it that way. Can't you take a joke? Why so serious? You know what I'm talking about? Um, and by the way, I'll say um, at a broad level, I think this is uh, politically conservative stuff tends to swing in this direction. It's like, how could you be offended? It's like, I don't know, but if they are, they are, right? Now, on the flip side, um, if you're enmeshed, if hurt assumes they know the intent and motivations of others. Also, very unhelpful, and I do think progressives tend to run in this direction. Uh, they'll actually say things like, intent doesn't matter. It's like, guys, intent really matters. I saw a white mayor accuse a black man of racism uh, towards black people because she was confused. Uh, so, and said intent doesn't matter. And so, um, intent does matter, okay? Uh, there are, uh, and so, that's really, really important, especially relationally. Just think about this, just at a relational level. I went macro with politics. At a relational level, um, if someone's impacted and they're hurt, they're hurt. It doesn't matter what you meant. Analogy I use a lot is, like, imagine Jackie's in our driveway, and she's, she's standing in the driveway, and I'm backing out my car, and I run over her toes. And imagine she's, like, making a noise or saying a word, maybe a swear word, I don't know. Uh, she would never do that. She's too sweet. But, um, but she'd be like, ah, whatever. And imagine I go, hey, I didn't mean to. Hey, I didn't mean to. It wasn't on purpose. How could you take it that way, right? It'd be like, dude, get her to a hospital. Like, receive her and get her to where she needs to go. Now, it could be very important in the long run for our marriage to clarify at some point, hey, I didn't run you over on purpose, Right? So, 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 again, I need to honor where she's at. But, again, it would be equally unhelpful if for years she's like, I know he did it on purpose. Like, there's no reason to think that. You know how much this inconvenience my life? I love you. I have all this evidence of loving you. And even, like, I don't, you don't have a good motive. And, like, who, you know. We have these kids. You think I want to go solo with these kids all day long? Like, they require a lot of work. Like, that's the move you think I'm making? Like, what's the advantage to, to, to me here? She's like, I know, I know. Because I was hurt, I'm always right about motive and intent. That's garbage, guys. It doesn't work on a macro level in society. It doesn't work relationally, okay? We need to go, if you've been impacted, I take that seriously, okay? And if I'm impacted, I also need to take seriously that, that I might have the intent wrong, and I should be curious and empathetic to ask what's going on. Does that make sense? There's empathy for everybody. Now, again, if you're actually a jerk and you're actually doing something on purpose, and after giving it, being given a chance to clarify, you double down, you're a jerk, uh, we don't need to go, that's great. You know what I mean? We can empathize with the fact that you're scared and self-righteous and, uh, and small emotionally, and, and that's where you are right now, okay? Um, again, we're never saying the actions are okay by empathizing. Um, 
Empathetic Jesus seeks to understand the intent and take seriously the impact on others. Again, you have empathy for everybody impacted in situations. It doesn't mean everyone's at the same level of fault. I want to be clear on that. But you see everyone is human, everyone in need of a savior, everyone in need of help. Um, and then last, uh, I have two, two more here at the end. Um, apathetic believes that if uh, someone loves them, they will leave them alone. Enmeshed believes that if someone loves them, they will agree with them or take their side in a conflict. Guys, this is destructive for spiritual community. Right? I, I remember back in the day, uh, I was a college pastor when Twilight came out, and it was like, team, what are the names? Team Jacob and what? Whatever. You don't even remember because it was stupid. And, and, and man, it was like, Team Jacob. Team. This shouldn't be life in the church. Team Allie, Team Maria, Team Nicole. We're like, dude, we've got a three-way battle. This is crazy. Battle Royale. Like, that's, that's not what we're, we're doing. We're Team Jesus. And we're very aware that, be, that people in the community are going to bump into each other and wrong each other. And we need to help them work that out. We're not doing team, team, team stuff. And most people go, if you love me, you'll be mad at them because I'm mad at them. That is unhealthy, codependent into a, a, a worse space, okay? That's different than sharing. I'm struggling with how to handle this or whatever. Um, d- d- does that make sense? Like, I, like if you're not, da-da. All right. Um, empathetic believes that it's possible to be deeply loved by someone who disagrees with them or doesn't take their side. And when you're providing the empathy, you can, right, again, um, you affirm feelings, but not necessarily narratives, okay? You affirm feelings, but not necessarily narratives. Go, to, go back, go to the second page. So you believe it's possible to love someone deeply, to care about their feelings, and not necessarily agree with them on everything. Agree with their narrative or their perspective or, or what they want to do about it. That's a whole other thing in a situation. All right, and then last thing I'll say, um, from an emotions perspective, I don't have this on the slides. Uh, I think people would be cut off from emotions, from other people. Um, And mesh people, again, would ask for you to, like, fix their emotions. Or if you're enmeshed and you're trying to be empathetic, um, you will actually think it's your job to fix their emotions or to manage their emotions or to make them happy. Again, there's a myriad of reasons for that. It could be how you grew up with your parents. It could be, you you know, you had situations that made you feel like you didn't matter, whatever it is. Um, But it doesn't help. Uh, it just doesn't work stuff. Again, if you're with an unhealthy person, they'll demand it. And the problem with that is it never ends. If I've made this agreement, I've been in this place before. It's called over-functioning. I'm doing a bunch of stuff for you. You're doing for yourself. I'm trying to make you happy. And then I, we hit a wall at some point where I can't do it because I got to live for, I have my own life to live. I'm trying to do everything for you to make you happy. And eventually uh, the wheels fall off the wagon and you just don't want any more to, to do with it. Or if they're a healthy person and you feel like you're responsible for fixing their feelings, um, they're going to feel minimized. Because you know what you do when you feel like you have to make people cheer up? Uh, you pitch silver linings. You, you pitch uh, the worst uses of scripture, guys, are like the Bible verse Band-Aid. Like, dude, my mom's stage four. You're like, hey, he's got a plan and a future and a hope. You're like, I don't know what that is for this. Right? Does that make sense? And, and by the way, that's uh, mentor mine, Steve because He says... Um, he says that that actually has to do, the, you're shrinking their situation because you're anxious about it. So you need to make it like neat and tidy to be able to fix it, to feel good about yourself. Uh, it's not about loving them or even cheering them up. It's we're uncomfortable with pain or grief or whatever it is. We feel like we need to like put a bow on it or like look on the bright side. And you know what's crazy, guys? The empathetic person, you're not cut off from their emotions. 
you're not responsible for their emotions, which you are, or you don't have to fix, you're present to their emotions. I don't need to make you happy, but I'm here with you as you're grieving. Does that make sense? And we can all do that. You sit with them and you listen. Okay. And if they ask you for help or advice, you can get into what you're able to do or, or what you think is appropriate to do or, or whatever it is. You can be present to their emotions. Not giving advice, not doing band-aid Bible verses, but actually reflecting the incarnate Jesus to them. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, so where I want to close. It says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are. Every way, guys. Just think about that. Yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Again, the empathy of Jesus is, is so beautiful. It's so profound. It's so different. Again, he connected to us while maintaining his difference. And I'm glad he maintained his difference. I'm glad he never sinned. Even though he's tempted by the enemy, he, he never sins. He also never steps away from his calling. His disciples want to make him a military, a Roman legionnaire. They want to make him someone who overthrows uh, Roman legionnaires. They want to make him a, like this Israeli military commando guy who leads them into victory, like an Alexander the Great, kind of Israeli style. And he's like, no, I'm, I'm here to be a Messiah. I'm here for spiritual revolution. I'm not here to overthrow Rome. Rome is terrible. What they're doing is terrible. An empire is terrible, but that's not why I'm here. There's another moment where he, he, he's tempted to not uh, stick to who he is. Peter, remember P Peter, like he tells Peter he's going to the cross. Peter starts yelling at him. And then Jesus says, hey, get behind me, Satan. It was a rough, rough moment with Jesus. As you have a diva, you're like, Lord, what do you want to say to me? Get behind me, Satan. But the reason he said that so strongly is because he knows who's motivating that idea. It's the enemy of our souls. And he's trying to get him off mission. He's trying to pull him away. That would be bad for us, Jesus. If you did what you're called to do, that would be bad for us. So you're a bad guy if you do it. He's like, no, I'm doing it because I love you. John 5 says, I only do what I see the Father doing. He's committed to his own mission. And God's called him too. So he's different, but also he connects. He understands. He we celebrate this at Christmas. He took on flesh. He knew poverty. He's so poor he couldn't pay his taxes. In a wildly patriarchal culture, he has women paying his bills. He worked a construction job. He was from a poor, strange family. Like that birth narrative, that's, that's a tough thing to overcome. He's likely mocked and slandered even before he came on the, the teaching scene where he would be mocked and slandered and have his reputation ruined. He was misunderstood by his family. Has anyone ever been there? Holidays, Jesus knows what it's like. He worked a job. Uh, he had dumb friends with bad advice. Does anyone know what that's like? He had family members with ideas about what he should be doing with his life. He experienced temptation. C.S. Lewis makes the point that um, we can sometimes 
look at Jesus and the fact that he didn't sin and go, he doesn't know how hard it is to be tempted down here. And C.S. Lewis says, actually, the longer you go without sinning, the harder the temptation is. When you give in to the temptation, the temptation's over. He knows temptation in every way. He experienced abuse and betrayal. His closest friends turned on him. He experienced physical pain like you and I could hardly imagine. He experienced God seeming distant in his suffering. And then he, he enters our world. He puts on flesh. He dies on a cross and he welcomes us into his presence. Though he is very different, he enters our world in just about every way that makes us human, yet doesn't sin. And on and on I can go. And so what I want to do right now to close is I want to hit the lights real quick. And I think that the key to empathy and living an incarnational life is remembering the empathy you have in Jesus. It comes from remembering the incarnation of Jesus, how he entered your world, how he seeks to understand us, how, how he wants us to come to him in our time of need. It is not godly to be apathetic but it's also gotten, it's also, it would, he wouldn't be God if he was just like us completely. He is altogether holy and different, but altogether with us. I want to take a second to remember the empathy of Jesus. And I pray that that would move us towards empathy towards others, to be curious about people who are different than us. To ask why they might be the way that they are, not excusing what they're doing, but to give us a sense of their humanity and their sense of their need of a savior. And the fact that you have more in common with them than you think. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for Christmas. I thank you for the incarnation. I thank you that you never let go of your calling or your distinctives. You had very firm boundaries and that you are God and we are not. But you enter humanity in a way that's just wild but you maintain your distinctiveness on this earth. You never sin. You do go to the cross, though no one wants you to. You do what the Father calls you to do, and we are such, we're so benefited by that fact. But I think that your mission wasn't just for you, it was for us. The reason you, 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 you didn't sin, the reason you go to the cross, the reason you experience alienation from God is because you want to connect to us. You don't want to be separate from us. We were already separate from you. You were not apathetic. You're the most empathetic person in the history of the universe. The humility, the kindness to stoop down and not just listen, but live with broken humans. to be a baby, to be a baby born in a cave, to be nursed on a teenage girl's body, to live a life of obscurity and poverty. You've, you've lived among us. You were dependent. So, Lord, would you teach us to live amongst each other and share not only the gospel of God, but our lives with one another because of the gospel of God. So as we take communion, we, we remember that ultimate act of reaching out, that ultimate act of coming down into the space with us, entering 
our pit of despair to lift us up. Thank you, Jesus, for your empathy. Thank you for your kindness. Manifest your grace now as we take communion. In your name we pray. Amen.